Do you want to know what color my socks are? Do you really? Do you want to know, like, how many eggs I've had this week? <laughs> I'm Roxanne Cody, and welcome to Just the Right Book. We are joined today on Just the Right Book by Jason Stanley, uh, the author of How Propaganda Works. Jason is an American philosopher, professor of philosophy at Yale University, the writer of a New York Times blog, The Stone. He has a Ph.D. from MIT in their Department of Linguistics and Philosophy. He's taught philosophy at Cornell, University of Michigan, and Rutgers. He's the author of four books and was the winner of the 2016 Prose Award for the subject area of philosophy. Welcome, Jason. Thank you very much. I had read a review of Jason's book in the New York Times and immediately thought, hmm, a book called How Propaganda Works, that might be kind of interesting uh, to read now, and got the book right away and could not stop reading about it, talking about it, and thought, we have to get Jason on, and I really appreciate your joining us. Let's start with a simple, or what seemingly is a simple question. How did your expertise and interest in philosophy lead to your writing about propaganda? Well, the question of propaganda and rhetoric is one of the central and oldest questions of the Western philosophical tradition, which is why I begin the book with Plato. Book eight of The Republic is about democracy, and it's Plato's objection to democracy. It's Plato's argument that democracy leads directly to tyranny. And his argument is that democracy has two central values, freedom and equality. And he says that freedom includes the freedom of speech, the liberty to say whatever you want. And given that democracy prizes freedom above all, it will inevitably lead to someone who uses that freedom irresponsibly to seize control, Mm. to split the people from each other, to demonize one group of people, to exclude them from the people, and feed people's desire for a leader, feed people's desire to follow, and, and stoke their fear using the freedom of speech and and the liberties that democracy gives you. And then he will seize control and hand out favors to the people and end democracy. And it poses this challenge for the system of government that our country has. And that is one of the, the foundational questions of philosophy. Is democracy stable in the presence of propaganda? We're a country that is almost 250 years old, and many would argue that this has been a wildly successful experiment of a democracy working properly. Do you think that we have had propaganda in a meaningful way in the last let's, – let's, let's take out the last year. Let's go back further. How do you think we have managed Plato's contention about how free speech could become problematic? How do you think we've managed that? 
First of all, I think black Americans might disagree with your view that it has been a been successful a good experiment. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And women also. Uh, for, for, yeah. Uh, so I think we've at best always been a partial democracy. Uh, but we have taken ourselves to follow democratic ideals. So uh, what you find in the black intellectual tradition, which is one of the richest philosophical traditions in the last 200 years, you find this question forefronted. You go back to Frederick Douglass's 1852 speech, What to the Slave is the Fourth of July, mm. when he talks about freedom. Yeah. He said, what does it mean to celebrate you freedom? You know, Frederick Douglass died. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Some have not yet heard. <laughs> Some have not yet heard. <laughs> I mean, what does it mean for America to celebrate freedom when it has one of the worst practices yeah. of brutality any human civilization has ever known? So we're, I take – my book takes from the black intellectual tradition this focus on the misuse of ideals. Yeah. And – uh, and that's familiar. The hypocritical use of, of ideals is as old as our country. So uh, we remember that under the George Bush administration, everything was named its opposite. You know, the Clean Air Act, you know, uh, the uh, everything, everything was or uh, Operation Iraqi Freedom. Everything was named, you know, freedom in the service of unfreedom. But at least there was that cloak. What you have now is authoritarian propaganda. And how would you distinguish that? Because you use that term in the book. Um, and I think that that shift was an interesting one for us to distinguish one from the other. Not that one is necessarily – well, one is better than the other. Yeah, I think the thing about hypocritical uses of ideals is that you still leave people with the tools – to bend the arc of history to, towards justice right. because you can confront them with their hypocrisy. But when – and I think we saw this in the last presidential election. Hillary Clinton was doing things by the books. We've now seen that Mike Pence used his private email server. Everybody, I mean she was representing herself as the democratic politician and people's anger towards her was any kind of perceived hypocrisy. So anytime she did anything wrong – well, because she represented herself, she was doing democratic politics. She was then blamed incredibly for that. Right. But Trump never pretended to be a Democrat. He was an authoritarian. He was corrupt. He was a kleptocrat the entire time. He, was, he ran as a kleptocrat. He said, of course I'm – I'm corrupt. His first comment in in the uh, in the Repub first Republican primary was, you know, he was asked, "Aren't you a Democrat? You paid Hillary Clinton." And he said, "Well, you know, I paid. I, I've given money to everybody here, almost everybody here. You know, that's what I do. You know, that's what you." So he never masked his actions under the fabric of Democratic rhetoric. That enabled him to escape the charges of hypocrisy, but it also robs us of any tools to criticize him. If you're going to say to Trump, you're a misogynist, you're racist, you're, you're you know, you, you can't use – because he's done everything so explicitly. So that's the problem with uh, authoritarians. That's the problem with those who simply go there and tell you what they're going to do and are upfront about it. <laughs> That. So that becomes trying to nail Jello to the wall then. If they've said it, you can't accuse them of anything because they've said it. So what is it in um, 
In the review in the New York Times, which was written by Michiko Kakutani, who writes a lot of the reviews, she opens the the rave review, the well-deserved rave review of your book, with a quote from Mein Kampf by Hitler. And I'm going to repeat the quote because I think it's a good uh, next stage for the conversation. So in Mein Kampf, Hitler argued that effective propaganda appeals to the feelings of the public rather than to their reasoning ability and relies on stereotyped formulas repeated over and over again to drum ideas into the minds of the masses and uses simple love or hate, right or wrong formulations to assail the enemy while making intentionally biased and one-sided arguments. Build that wall. Build that wall. Yeah. So his supporters, people who feel that they've been gypped by the system. Trump comes along and appeals to their emotions. At what point is the reality of him not fixing his their problems override the emotional appeal he makes to them under this theory of how propaganda works? Right. For, first, I want to note that the group that has been most screwed over in the last eight years are black Americans. The black-white wealth gap is its largest ever. They've clearly been failed by the system, but yet they did not give up on democracy. So I think we really need to call things as they are and say, well, when we just talk about white people who are feel failed by the system, who are failed by the system, and they are failed by the system, they are failed by the system, but there's a lot of other people who are failed by the system that didn't give up on democracy. So that cannot be the whole story. So why, why not, without diverting too much, if blacks, which I would agree with, have spent a very long time, some would say hundreds and hundreds of years, being disadvantaged, what is it that compels them to stick with democracy, whereas the the group that are the white people who have more recently been uh, harmed by the gap so quickly bailed on democracy, or, or maybe they don't see that they've bailed on democracy. It's a good question whether they've seen that they've bailed on democracy. They, they don't see that, that their desire for a leader, their desire for uh, someone to follow is anti-democratic. So I think a lot of people don't realize that. But I think prizing liberty is at the very center of the soul of the people who've descended from enslaved people. Mm. <laughs> uh, liberty is a cherished value and equality, the other value of democracy. Why is it that some people are so reluctant to give up freedom for something they perceive as security? So to go back to your original question, we have to remember that democracy has always – freedom has always been taken to be threatening. The Protocols of the Elders of Zion is about freedom. The Protocols of the Elders of Zion says that freedom is a Jewish plot to usurp the traditional role of Christianity because, you know, with freedom – Everyone's free. You have to give every – in a society that cherishes freedom, everyone has to be given the right to pursue their, their own, own liberties. And that means that there must be a menorah in the public square, that Islam needs to be given a place in the public square, that everyone's freedoms have to be respected and no one tradition can dominate. So when you have a country like the United States where there there is an overwhelming majority of one faith uh, – 
and and that faith is the source of human rights and many of the fundamental concepts of democracy. But still, there's a war. There's a tr- tension between some of those traditions and freedom because freedom requires giving everyone freedom. And that requires giving people freedom who don't share your tradition. I, I thought about this recently because I picked up the Federalist Papers. I picked them up because I thought, I want to educate myself about how do the relative rights of all the branches of government actually work? And I know there's been changes, obviously. There's more executive powers than I think were envisioned originally. And in reading it, I was reminded that the writing all this stuff, which was beautifully written and thoughtful and eloquent, but slavery still existed. So they managed to not include that. But the other thing that it made me think about is, and I don't know that I can articulate this the right way, but democracy in some way is about what's good for most of the people, right? By that there isn't a way to be, is there a way where everything is fair? And let's take this. Let's take the idea that giving this to group A by definition takes something away from group B. So give us a background of how does propaganda work? Well, actually, let's begin with with some classic definitions that I think are bad definitions because they're too general. Okay. So some people say propaganda is biased speech. Well, you know, Give me something that's not biased speech. All speech is biased speech. I mean, if I, if you, if you say that's a professor, someone thinks egghead, liberal. If you, if you say, you know, uh, you know, mortgage, people think, oh, stress. I mean, all speech brings with it a flood of connotation. Some people define will define propaganda as cherry picking facts, but in the word cherry picking that's you know negative and pejorative. So uh, people would describe the New York Times, for instance, versus the Wall Street Journal as cherry picking. Each cherry picking for their point of view. Right, but we all. I mean, your point is everyone's doing that. I mean, if I'm not going to cherry pick facts, I'm it, I'm going to be a very boring interviewee. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, do you want to know what color my socks are? <laughs> do you really? Do you want to know like how many eggs I've had this week? <laughs> I mean, being an entertaining interviewee involves cherry picking facts. Right. Uh, teaching a class involves cherry picking facts. People are like the university should be have should teach every point. A view, but here's <laughs> but here's the here's the counter argument to that. If you're cherry picking facts to lead the witness, is isn't that propaganda? When I'm teaching a class, I try to teach lead my students to the truth. When I teach logic, I I am cherry picking like I am teaching the structure of the mathematical reality in such a way that will lead my students to see what the correct answer is. Mm-hmm. It gets even trickier than that because you could say, okay, well, all right, you can lead the witness towards truth. That's okay. <laughs> but leading the witness towards other things is bad. Well, think about teaching physics. When people teach physics, if you teach Newtonian mechanics, you're teaching a false physical theory. We nevertheless teach Newtonian mechanics. Is that yeah. propaganda? So, you know, no, it's, it's, it's like it's false 
but you know it's useful and so so it's really hard this topic how to characterize propaganda um so so now go to what it is what it is so I characterize one kind of propaganda undermining propaganda, which we've already discussed, which is using an ideal against itself, using freedom in the service of unfreedom, mm. uh, using take the voter ID laws. Voter ID laws are pushed in defense of democracy to protect the vote. And, and it is true, and we must admit that, that between 2000 and 2012, between 8 and 12 cases of voter fraud were discovered in all state local and national elections and any case of voter there you fraud. Go. Yeah. <laughs> but but these ID laws disenfranchise millions of people. But they're pushed for using the ideal of democracy, but they mm. undermine democracy. So that's what I call undermining propaganda. When you use democ- an ideal. You use an ideal against the ideal. Okay, I like that one. Yeah. And and, and is that an element I mean if I in in reading your book so with that created, if you're undermining people's confidence in institutions and the news that exist, then they resort to what? Well, there are different theories about – and I think all of these different things are happening. But I think if you just – all that needs to be done to undermine democracy is under and undermine institutions is undermine trust. You don't actually need to trust any, anything. anything. Once you've got rid of that, you don't even need to leave anyone trustworthy behind. But this leads us to authoritarianism. What is the character of authoritarian propaganda? Well, when you destroy all mechanisms of trust, who are you left with as the only person who defines reality? The leader. Right. And the goal of authoritarian propaganda is to set up the leader as the only source of reality. And that doesn't mean people will believe the leader, but I mean, they know, I think people know in authoritarian societies, Putin has an 86% approval rating, and people know that he's not saying true things. The individual things he says are not true, but they think he has speaks to a deep truth. The truth of the Russian people and the glory of the Russian people. So they redefine even truth. Yeah, like they don't care about the individual statements and whether they're true. They they think that's just a game and and really the authoritarian – but the authoritarian leader is really speaking to the values that they cherish and that's – And that overrides. That overrides everything. To go back to your earlier point, what will people do when they feel – when they don't get the material benefits? I fear they will do nothing. They mm. will be happy. As Victor Klemperer says, he met an amputee, a Nazi veteran, wounded coming back from the East Front, Eastern Front, who said in 1945, who said, Hitler has never lied. Right. Those were great diaries. And, and that brings me to the next question I was going to ask. In in reading about you, I uh, learned that you are the son of Holocaust survivors. Did that shape your interest in this topic of propaganda since your parents and my parents both suffered at the hands of a leader that convinced people that Jews were – different, inferior people, and therefore they could be eliminated. Uh, Absolutely. I mean, I I think there's no question that our pasts affected our desire to speak with a public voice towards the structures that pit groups against groups. So some people take away from the experience our parents had that their particular group 
is always under threat. Uh, I think that's the wrong moral. I agree. The right moral is that, you know... Look how this can happen. Look how this can happen. And it's going all the way back to Plato, a way to rise to power is pick a group and demonize them. Mm. I mean... The is that right, Jason? Yes. It's, it's, you, you, need, you need a minority group. That's and, always been the device. That's always the device. Fear, hysterical fear, to like generate hysterical fear against a group. You create fear. This dates all the back, way back to Plato. The tyrant creates fear, foments fear, hysterical fear, and then projects themselves as the only person who can protect you. Mm. So to go back to your question about my upbringing, my father looked broadly at this, at this. He studied colonialism, wrote his dissertation on British colonialism in Kenya. And he used a very particular tribe. The Kikuyu. Right. Yeah. Uh, he looked at the effects of British colonialism on the Kikuyu, the way, the way that the British treated them as savages in need of Christianization, and then use that to take their land and their resources. And, A story and, written many times in many places. Yeah, many times in many places. Uh, and it's, and it's, it's, it's written here with a emergency management when you declare places, uh, poor urban areas, places of ruin and destitu destitution. You seize them. And then you develop them and sell them to wealthy developers. Right. You know, that's a strategy of, of inner cities are places of great despair and ruin. Well, you know, we see in Michigan with Flint, Michigan, we see with what happened to Detroit that there's an enormous seizure of property when, that follows that. Yeah. And you take it from people you declare to be savage, violent savages, rioting out of control. And you're saving the world from them. Yes. You hand the property to billionaires <laughs> to develop, as look at Detroit, and then they sell it as condos. <laughs> I think the question that a lot of, I mean, in reading your book, which I think is a really brilliant exploration of the topic on both an academic level. I mean, there were parts where I had to underline it and study it in a different way as somebody who's been out of school for 40 years. You also apply, I found, a very practical view of how we think about it. The question I would have for you that I think listeners would be interested in is this. How do we both recognize what is propaganda and how do we behave in order to mitigate the damage that propaganda at its worst can inflict on us as a country? Every German raised under National Socialism, when they hear the word hero, has just one of three pictures in their head, a race car driver, a panzer tank driver, and a stormtrooper. And there's just no way, unless you grew up in that society, that you would know that. Yeah. And it's the same with the associations. Right now, we're undergoing a very intense attempt to get us to link immigration and crime. And it's happened before, but I don't think when I consult the pictures in my head that I have that connection. But that's being forged before our eyes. Uh, they're, they're running exactly the same pattern that Ronald Reagan ran with crime and race, Nixon most famously. So we have to, I think, do not repeat the, the words. Don't, you know, try to fight, try to change the frame. It's very important to change the frame. We're being told that security is most important. Well, you know, we should switch the frame to fairness. Mm -hmm. Like, is it fair to throw someone out of the country because they do something like 
they they go speeding or you know they 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 litter or they try to sign their kid up for school is that fair you know let's shift the frame to that and do you think ordinary folks who are not journalists or uh, are not in positions of power by collectively and systemically reframing the conversation can mitigate the damage Yes, I think uh, I think we've seen it. We saw it with the civil rights movement. I mean, people forget the civil rights movement happened in Alabama. That's a pretty scary place yeah. for the civil rights movement to happen. And what they did is they got themselves on television being beaten for voting. Yeah. And so they shifted the frame. I fear shifting the frame, you know, involves putting yourself at risk. And- I was just going to ask you, do you think – I've thought about this a lot. I think about it. You know, when I think about my parents' experience and my parents have talked about Germans who risked their lives to help one of my parents uh, or Christian neighbors who saved them or Christian neighbors who turned them in. And my parents always had us understand that it's not as simple as they did something right or they did something wrong. It came down to saving their own life or their child's life or their parents' life. Do you think we as a country still have the capacity to be heroic for what we believe is right? I do. I think I, I do. I think liberty, freedom, fairness, human rights, these are, these are concepts that come from two of our great majority traditions, democracy and Christianity. Christianity gives us the concept of human rights. We have the resources. We have these strong, strong ethical traditions in our faith-based communities and in our secular traditions. And w- we need to return to those values. We need to shift from security to Christian values, to secular democratic values, to the experiences that our own forefathers, that our own parents and ancestors had fleeing to these shores. So, Jason, are you worried but hopeful? uh, Optimism of the will, pessimism of the intellect. (laughs) Did you make that up? Antonio Gramsci. (laughs) (laughs) I love – say that again because that's really great. Optimism of the will, pessimism of the intellect. That's fantastic. So speaking of that, uh, one of the questions I love to ask the authors that are on our show is what's the book that changed your life? (laughs) Just for those of you listening since this is not visual, Jason made – Sort of a little something between a grimace and a smile. Uh, you have to understand I was raised in a house with 15,000 books yeah. with two rows of books. Deep. In, deep. And only my father knew the key and he read to us constantly like all of War and Peace, mm. uh, which didn't change my life. <laughs> but uh, what is the book that changed my life? So many books have changed my life. Uh, uh, I, I would say um, several books have changed my life many times over, but m- more recently, Du Bois's Souls of Black Folk mm. because it is an ode to freedom. It is an ode to freedom from the perspective of someone who hasn't experienced it and it gives you that vision of the perspective of someone of the value 
of liberty. That's great. And I appreciate that. It reminds me this newsletter that I had sent out about what an informed citizen might want to reread or read now in order to be informed. And one of the books I picked was yours. But the other one that I picked with the same view as what you're talking about is Sojourner Truth's Narratives of a Slave. Oh. For a similar reason. Absolutely. For exactly a similar reason because I think she, like he, puts in the perspective where you are in their shoes. They both so brilliantly, I think, makes you understand what that loss of liberty and freedom really, really feels like. Right. I mean, du du Bois, I mean, I I worship Du Bois because he's not just one of the great thinkers of the last 200 years, but it's, he can, he occupies, he's an academic. Right. But he's also... And Sojourner Truth was not. One time I was teaching in a class, I I was teaching my propaganda class at Yale. I was teaching about importance of liberal education, which is very much a theme of Du Bois, obviously. And one of the students pointed out, she's like, are you saying that my ancestors weren't free? They didn't, they weren't like capable of making their own decisions because they didn't have a liberal education. Mm. And that's what Sojourner Truth reminds you of. Yeah. She reminds you that the structures of freedom exist in every formation. So what's interesting, Jason, just to take it one step further that occurs to me as I'm listening to you, we're both children of immigrants. My parents are uneducated. Your parents are highly educated. Well, my mother my mother went to college. She right. As opposed life. to a mother who was out of school in third grade and came to this country uneducated. So it's interesting that you would be attracted to a intellectual and I'm attracted uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> it, just, it just occurred to me. Jason, I am, you know, I'm thrilled about you taking the time to join us on Just the Right Book. I loved having this conversation with you. I hope uh, we'll have another conversation. And uh, Jason Stanley is the author of How Propaganda Works, a book that given our times and the challenges that we're all facing, I think is an extremely important, informative book for us to be reading. So thank you so much for writing it, and thank you for taking the time to speak with us. Thank you for the wonderful conversation. Thought you might want to know, the National Book Critics Circle Awards were granted And you'll be able to find all the books on our website, justtherightbookpodcast.com. But there's a couple I particularly wanted to make sure you noted. I'm thrilled uh, that the book Evicted by Matthew Desmond uh, won. The full title is Evicted, Poverty and Profit in the American City. And Matthew does a riveting job of describing what this whole process of low-income housing looks like. And he does a very even-handed job. It's not like there are all bad guys or all good guys. It's a much more nuanced book. The other book that won for autobiography is Lab Girl by Hope Janren. I'm not sure I'm pronouncing it right. It's J-A-H-R-E-N. I haven't read this yet, but... 
everyone I know has absolutely raved about this book. And it winning this latest award is definitely going to put it on my radar screen. The other book that won the John Leonard Prize was Homegoing. Homegoing is a story that begins in the 1700s in Ghana, follows two sisters and their descendants through the present day, one who remains in their village and the other is transported as a slave to the United States. It is a brilliant arc of understanding the life experience and the impact on the descendants of Africans who emigrated to the United States and those who stayed in Africa. To me, it was one of the top books from last year, and it's called Homegoing. There's lots of other books that won, but check it all out. It's always fun to see what books are awarded these prizes. For a complete list of all the books in today's episode, including Jason Stanley's book, How Propaganda Works, just go to bookpodcast.com. Please subscribe to Just the Right Book on iTunes, and while you're there, don't forget to rate and review us. Also, please email us at info at justtherightbookpodcast.com. Just the Right Book Podcast is produced by Collisions, the podcast division of CRN International. Our original music was created by Mark Berman. Our producer is Christina Torres. And our sound engineer is Pat Keogh. Thank you all for listening.